listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Cool. So thank you all again, parents, for entrusting us with your children. Uh, Our hope is that they know more about Jesus and learn how to fall in love with him each and every week. And so we want to partner alongside of you as parents and encourage them with that. Uh, Our our mission, before we jump into Luke yet again, today is a a real fun day uh, for me. I love this kind of stuff. I even thought about not preaching, just talking about what God is doing in and through our midst. Um, It's just a a great day, but I wanted to get through Luke at some point um, before I turn 40. So uh, we're going to do that in just a minute, all 132 verses. But um, just so you know, here's a a quick announcement for y'all. The mission of South Point has not changed. And the mission of God has not changed. We're, we're on that together. And we say it each and every week. David said that for us this morning. We, we exist to equip the family of God. That's y'all. That's me. That's us. All of us. Current generation, previous generations, that next generation. Uh, to equip us to be the family of God. To see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so we're, we're walking through this transformation process together. But as we add more souls into the family, it becomes more difficult over time. There's just more to do, more transformation processes that are at work and that are at play. A couple of things that have contributed even more so to need a transformation. Maybe, maybe some ways that I really think the enemy has been working, and maybe if not working as creating these opportunities, he's certainly been utilizing these opportunities um, for spiritual stagnation. A couple of those things that we've seen the past couple of years, one is COVID. Uh, there still are churches that are shut down for now over two years where the people of God aren't gathering together. But even in the midst of COVID, we saw this isolation. In the middle of that isolation, we've seen um, suicide numbers go through the roof. With young people, with adults, we see depression on an all-time high. And because we're not being part of community, and we're not able to sit across the table and see someone face-to-face, and even if you see them face-to-face, sometimes you can only see their eyeballs because the rest of their face is covered. So what that's done is that's created a a certain barrier to spiritual growth for us. And in that, we've kind of gone into our own little world. Uh, Another reason that we uh, see some of these issues on the rise is social media. Um, And that's just created, again, this isolation, this comparative culture for us. So what we see before us as church leaders, and hopefully as a church body, what I see before us is a great need. Uh, Unlike one that we've seen in generations past, And that doesn't mean that the need is necessarily greater today than we've ever seen in human history, but it's certainly different and it's certainly incredibly great. Uh, We live in a culture and in a society where even the valuation of God and of righteous living is being squashed, It's, it's being diminished. And now we're getting to the point where living a godly and a holy life is being made fun of. And pretty soon it's going to be persecuted. And so the mission of God has not changed. And the church is going to keep going forward. This is the vehicle by which, by which the mission of God goes forward. And so we see a great need in front of us. Our goal is to make disciples. No, no matter what happens, for us as a church, we are going to keep making disciples. That's our goal. That's what Christ has commanded us to do. So even if that means, just so you know, if persecution or whatever gets to the point, if we run out of uh, money, out of resources it's okay if we don't have a building. It's okay if we don't have programs. It's okay if we can't put on VBS. It's okay if I don't get a salary or if Chris doesn't or my dad. It's okay if if we don't get these resources. Our goal is to keep making disciples no matter what. That's our vision. That's where we're going. So in pursuit of that, we have a great opportunity. You're like, where is he going with this? This sounds bad and then it sounds good and then it sounds worse and then it sounds bad. Like we don't know what's going on. So here, here's, here's what I want us to, to, to get this morning. We have a huge need in front of us. We have a great vision that Christ has called us to. So this morning we have a great opportunity. Keith, come on up here with me if you would. Uh, as a church, we have financially supported the Keller family and Keith is representing them. His wife, Rachel, is actually uh, helping to lead worship this morning down in Locust Grove. I tried to get her up here. Come on, yeah, come on up here all the way. 
but we've been supporting Keith and his family for years. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, they found themselves back in the States for the past year, year and a half. Uh, and they've been prayerfully considering their next steps, their work. What's he going to do? His location, is he going to go back to Prague? He's been there. If you want his story, you can ask him uh, later. Uh, but during that time, uh, Keith and Rachel have been utilizing their training they're gifting for the sake of the body. They've been pouring into so many souls here at South Point, myself included. Um, some of you know the past year for me, the past 10 months, has been unlike any year that I've experienced ever in my life. And I owe a great uh, debt to Keith just to be able to stand here this morning. My, my wife texted me this morning. She said, are you okay? She didn't know where I was because I was at Leo's eating breakfast. That Just completely unlike me. But, but just the fact that she knows he's probably okay at this point on a Sunday morning, that's a, that's, a, that's a great distance from where I've been the past several months. So again, if you want to know more about that, you can ask us. But the only reason I say that is because there are many in our body who are struggling even the past year, two years, as a result of so many things that we see culturally. And Keith and Rachel have stepped in. And they've helped to bridge that gap between where we need to be and where we are currently. And they're helping to make disciples in that way. So uh, our church is growing spiritually. I, I speak for that myself, but um, our church is growing spiritually due to the efforts of Keith. Uh, and up to this point, we've only been paying for his housing. So at the end of last year, we raised just over $30,000 through the Give Hope campaign, and we were able to pay his housing so far for this year, which is a, a crazy rental climate. But we've been paying that. But moving forward, uh, I'm stoked to announce that we're going to be bringing Keith on paid staff here at South Point. And so some folks are like, well, before you told us that wasn't the plan, and just so you know, that wasn't the plan uh, because we didn't know what the plan was. And so we've taken this one step at a time, trying to figure out where he was going to be. He didn't know where he was going to be, what he was going to be doing. Uh, he's been faithful, and we've been trying to faithfully figure out where does God have us. And we see it as uh, pastors and bring Keith along and staff and church leadership as we are going to be best equipped to make disciples uh, having Keith here on board with us. And so uh, we're going to start paying. We started paying him the past couple of weeks for what he's already been doing for a year and a half. And so he's going to continue doing that um, here with us, hopefully until he retires or I go home to be with Jesus or something. So uh, hopefully he retires before I do. Here's what he's going to be doing. He's going to, continue, uh, to, he's going to continue to be available to provide spiritual direction and soul care for those in our body who want it. He's going to be focusing on life groups and DNA groups. And he'll be cultivating soul care and spiritual formation within our church family. And then thirdly, he'll be creating and leading equipping processes for us to continue growing in spiritual conversations. And so if you know Keith, if you've interacted with him or Rachel, uh, this is like, oh, well, yeah, duh. This is a no-brainer. Um, and so even though it's been a long time coming, uh, I'm really thrilled about this. Um, I think it's a great day for our church uh, here in McDonough and in Locust Grove. I'm, I'm really excited. If some of y'all aren't familiar with this face, it's because, unfortunately, he thinks my dad is cooler than me. Um, and so he's been hanging out in Locust Grove a whole lot more than the McDonough. But we're praying that the Lord would change his heart. Um, Keith brings with him a, a wealth of counseling knowledge and mission contacts, uh, many of which he's going to maintain to continue training others in his stead. So he's, gonna, he's still working with uh, some folks that are international um, to keep these spiritual conversations guiding, directing, um, training things going on. The nice thing about that, though, is that we as a church have the opportunity of piggybacking on the direction of those different organizations. And so it's going to provide international opportunities for us to uh, be able to minister to, to folks because sometimes that's really hard to find contacts, know what to do, know where to go, how to fund those things. And so now we have a really specific way to do that. So lastly, church, um, from me, I wrote this from me, but on behalf of Keith also, on behalf of church leadership, thank you. Thank you for making it possible um, to be able to hire Keith. Um, and we, we are just really excited about what the, what the Lord is doing and what he's going to continue to do. Um, the future is bright. So this morning, church, uh, join me in welcoming Keith to our family. Thank you, bro. Thank you, man. Yeah. All right, we'll jump into Luke. Y'all ready? Finally. Um, maybe you're like me. Do you ever feel like something is missing in life? Raise your hand. 
You, do, you ever, do you ever feel like there's something, there's something more? <laughs> people are like, yeah, 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 I do. Some people are like, yeah, I kinda, kind of do. Um, but yeah, for me, I'd be both hands up. I, I'm just like, what? there must be something more. There must be something better. There must be something else. I feel like everybody's in on this secret. It's kind of like the Truman Show. Remember that from back in the late 90s? Uh, Jim Carrey, I think. Uh, it, it was one of my favorite movies. Love it. Uh, but it's like everybody's in on this secret that there must be something more to life, but I just don't know about it. And you keep going and you keep striving and it's, it's more apps and it's more money and it's more family and it's more wives and it's more kids and it's more retirement and it's more jobs and it's more cars and it's better this and more this. And it, you're just like, okay, once I get that, then I'll be good. And then you get it and you're like, man, why am I not good? I, I thought this was what life was about. And I got here and I turn around and look and I'm like, yeah, all right, let me, let me see what's next, right? Friday morning I woke up um, it, after a, a, a great week hanging out with, you know, kids and some of y'all. Uh, but I woke up Friday morning. I haven't, I haven't told anybody this, uh, uh, especially my wife. She usually hears things for the first time on Sunday mornings at about 11, 11. So, but I woke up Friday morning and I just thought, man, I, I wish I made more money. I do. I, I wish I had more money to, to go more places and to buy more stuff and to do more things and for my life to be more comfortable. I, I wish I had a bigger TV. I wish I had a better surround sound system. Uh, I wish I didn't have to work on my master bathroom myself. I wish I could just pay somebody to do that. I, I wish I had not just one nice pair of shoes, but two. I wish I could go and afford whatever t-shirts I wanted to afford. I wish I could afford a personal trainer. Like, I'm, just, I'm sitting here laying in bed first thing in the morning. Boom, 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 boom. Later that morning, I'm sitting with, uh, with someone, and they start telling me about how they're having suicidal thoughts. And they're struggling through these things. Now, I, if you were to say, okay, which one of these extremes are you at? Oftentimes, we find ourselves at both of these things, Right? Anybody been at either one of those places this week? They're like, yeah, that, one of those is probably resonating. But, but here's the thing. For both of those, they're responding to this idea that we are in constant turmoil about what we think we need. I desire this stuff more and more and more. And when it doesn't give us what we think it's going to, I need more stuff or I want to escape reality and I want to end it because it hasn't provided for me what it has promised. And so those two responses are actually the same response. Life is not what I think it is supposed to be. This isn't what I signed up for. We think there's something more. We think there's something better. And that's what our culture is guided around. And so often we talk about peace. We talk about rest. And I know for me, if I, if I preach or mention peace or rest, people are like, man, yes, that's what I need. I need those things. I think the reason for that is because that pursuit of more has led to us being in the midst of dying from a cancerous restlessness. We are constantly looking for more, striving for more, looking for better. And it's eating us. It's killing us from the inside. Because, friends, we weren't made to live like that. We weren't made for these fleeting passions and pursuits to satisfy us. We weren't made to give ourselves to these things and then provide for us ultimate meaning. There must be a better way of living. It's like, yeah, yeah, the better way of living is if I had more money. If I had, right? And it's so easy for us to go there. It's almost our... Our default. So what I want us to see this morning in this pretty long passage is that there is a way to truly live. The better life, the true life, is the life that Christ has modeled that he commands for us. So I break this passage down into seven sections. And so I want us to look at these seven headers. Hannah already gracefully read this for us. And so I'm not going to read the entire passage or even some parts of it again. Uh, but just know that we're going to walk through this uh, section by section. And then I have seven truths from each one of these passages for us to walk away with. And so listen quickly. I'm going to try to speak quickly. As we look at this, we know that from other accounts, especially if we look at uh, Matthew, I believe it starts in chapter 21, the parallel account of this. 
as Chris preached on last week, we had Palm Sunday. We had Jesus coming into Jerusalem. This is Passion Week, Passover week. And so about on Wednesday and Thursday, we see Jesus heading to the cross. Friday, he's going to be on the cross. So as we look at this passage today, this is about one day's worth of activity. And this is probably Monday. So this passage, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And as we pick up in chapter 20, it's actually the beginning of the day on Monday. Okay, so that's where we are in this story narrative, Jesus' life. He's only got a few days left before the cross. So we see here chapter 19, at the very end of chapter 19, Jesus steps in and he cleanses the temple. We see that truly living is modeled by the life of Jesus. Truly living is modeled by the life of Jesus. So Jesus comes in, remember back in the 90s, we all had WWJD bracelets? Some of you are like, I was born in 2004. Okay, just... Forget you, man. Um, uh, but back in the 90s, we had these WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? Here as we read this passage, I think sometimes we think, what would Jesus do? Well, he would travel mystically from one yoga mat to the next, speaking calmly and holding up the peace sign and eating vegan diets and uh, drinking non-alcoholic wine. Here's what Jesus is going around doing. It's all peaceful. It's all good. But notice the way that we know what Jesus would do is by looking at the life of Jesus and what he did. So we see Jesus here. He comes into the temple, and Matthew actually tells us he starts turning over tables, not in a nice way, but the only way that you can turn over tables, which is because he's angry that the people of God are not doing what they were commanded to do. They took their priorities and preferences and put them over what they were supposed to be doing there in the temple, which is being a house of prayer. So don't, don't assume that you know what Jesus was doing, what he was feeling. But I'll say to you this, how do you think Jesus was feeling here on this Monday morning? Because we can look at what Jesus would do. But, but I, we have to stop and ask the question, how did Jesus feel at this moment? How must he have felt knowing these are my people that I have come for, I've identified with them, and I'm about to go to the cross on behalf of them. And here they are in my house, and they're making a mockery of me and what I've commanded them to do. No wonder he starts flipping tables and takes out a whip and starts bashing people. He's angry. He's angry at sin. It's the only just and righteous response. We see here he comes to the courtyard. He's just outside. And this courtyard was huge. It was 35 acres big. And this is, this is good to know because the, the courtyard is meant for both Jews and Gentiles. This was the place when all folks of the world should have been able to experience the presence of God. And so worshipers would come, and we talked about how this is Passover week, and so uh, Jews from all over were coming to Jerusalem to worship. And they often couldn't bring their own uh, sacrifices with them, and so they would have to get to a market there and buy sacrifices, uh, buy animals, buy doves, buy lambs, buy goats. They have to get there and buy these things. And so what Jesus is really upset about is that uh, these entrepreneurs of sorts um, were marking up the price of these sacrifices. But what's crazy is all the prophets went to the high priest. They went to the high priest. So a real, the most religious of religious people are taking the most advantage of God's people. It's wild. It's like going to the Braves game. So they didn't really have any other option. You ever go to the Braves game? It's like, yeah, we got $10 seats and they're really good, but we had to pay for a $12 hot dog. It's like, why didn't you get the cheaper hot dog? There was nothing else at the ballpark any cheaper. Well, was the hot dog worth $12? No. It was terrible. It, it, was, it was trash. At least go to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium where stuff is at least cheaper. But, but here, which you can't afford the tickets to the Falcons game. But here, that's all they had. So they were being ripped off by the religious leaders. So Christ gets fired up about that. And he says here in verse number 46, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, our church is going to be a church of prayer. I'll say it again. We are going to be a church of prayer. Amen? Don't overemphasize the, the place of the temple here. Don't overemphasize or, yeah, don't overemphasize like when we get this room. This is not, I, I had a lady uh, a while back, she told me, she said, the way that we keep our kids off the stage, and I wasn't asking for any advice, but she felt the need to volunteer it. She said, the way that we keep our kids off the stage is we, we treat the stage, we tell them it's the holy of holies. And the auditorium is the holy place. And the atrium is the outer courtyard. Because we want to use our, I'm like, 
Dang. All right. Well, what church is that again? <laughs> so if you want to know, just um, I'll tell you later. Um, maybe. Or I just might make it up. I don't know. Uh, but she told me, I was just like, no, no, that's not really how that works. We as the people of God, so don't overemphasize the temple. We are now the indwelt, we have the indwelt spirit within us. We are the people of God. But I'll also say this, as we shouldn't overemphasize the temple here because Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's the better priest. He's the better lamb. He's the better altar. He's the better holy of holies. He's the better presence of God. We also cannot, we should not undervalue the gathering of God's people. When God's people gather and pray, something special happens. Something special happens. That's why we're commanded to pray. Jesus here doesn't say, my house is going to be a house of good theology. No. He, he doesn't say, my house is going to be a house with a good EQ system. No. He doesn't say, my house is going to be a house where you are incredibly missional. My house is going to be a house where you dress up and look good and smell good. My house is going to be a house of prayer. Friends, don't be robbed of the greatest gift that you have been given. And that's the presence of the living God. We have the presence of the living God in prayer. We have access to the throne room of grace through Jesus Christ. And so I would plead with you, don't be robbed of that presence of God in your life. And I also plead with you, don't rob that gift from your family. Don't rob it from your children. Don't rob it from others in this body. It's not because we prefer to come here and gather as God's people. It's because God says, my house is going to be a house of prayer. And it requires all of us. Secondly, as we get into chapter 20, we see that truly living recognizes the authority of Jesus. So we see it modeled there in the life of Jesus. We've seen it all throughout the book of Luke. Truly living recognizes the authority of Jesus. In verses 1 and 2, as Jesus was preaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, uh, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? You see, they're trying to trap him. Why? Because people are like, oh, if we can trip him up, people don't, nobody likes authority. So let's make sure we know that he doesn't have any. What's the newest movie that just came out? Everybody's going to go see it. Top Gun. What's the next word? Maverick. Yeah, what does Maverick mean? Someone who doesn't really like authority. Someone who, and so we've spent almost $600 million on that so far as a, as a nation. Now, I haven't seen it. I haven't even seen the first one. I know you can throw, I, I'm sorry. Um, it came out about the time I was born. So I just haven't gotten around to watching it. Somebody told me last night that Goose dies. And I said, oh, they said, well, you know, that, you know, Goose dies in the first one. I said, now I do. I had no idea. So I haven't seen the first one. But here's what I know is that as a culture, and I don't really care if you see the movie or not, but it's just indicative that we, by nature, we would rather identify with someone who is anti-authority than with authority. So the scribes here are saying, no, no, let's be anti-authority. That's why we shouldn't like Jesus. But then notice, so they ask him this question. Verse number five, uh, Jesus says, well, you tell me, was it John the Baptist? Does he have authority or does he not? Verse number five, and they discussed it with one another. These are the, 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 the chief priests, the most religious people. They form this holy huddle, and they say, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they were convinced that John was a prophet. So they have to get together in a holy huddle and figure out if they want to trust and obey the authority that Jesus here has. Because here's, here's the setup. If they said, uh, no, you did not have authority from John, then the people would be like, no, 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 we like John. We, we liked him a lot, and they'd be mad at them. And if they said, no, no, he, he does have authority from John, Jesus would say, yeah, I have authority from John, and he's from God. You recognize that, so why would I accept my authority? So they're stuck here between a rock and a hard place. So like good politicians who are stuck uh, oftentimes between conviction and cowardice, they decide to spin it for their, their, own, self, their own selves. And that's what they say in verse number seven. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. So, they, so Jesus poses this question, and they're like, Ah, we don't know. Actually, we know the truth, but we don't like the political ramifications of the truth. We don't like the outcome, the windfall of what may happen if we proclaim the truth, that you actually have all authority. So they say, Jesus, we really don't know. <laughs> I, I like Jesus' response here. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's like, well, stinks for y'all. But he's like, I really think y'all know. I'll let you figure it out for yourselves. But truly living recognizes the authority of Christ. 
We can't just go, ah, well, we don't know. We don't know. Jesus here says, yeah, yeah. If, if you know, then you know. If you have eyes to see, then you know. The third thing that we see here in this passage, we pick up in verse number nine, and we look at these next 10 verses, but truly living is being built on Jesus. And we see here, uh, Jesus tells this parable. He tells the people the parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it uh, out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when he came, he sent a servant to the tenants. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So these tenants should be, have been giving back. They were able to receive their commission from taking care of the land. But they, you know what? The owner's not here. And so we're going to do our own thing. While the owner is gone, we're going to live our own way. Verse number 11. And so the owner sends another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also, they wounded and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? W-S-I-D. Um, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Is it starting to ring a couple bells? We have the owner, the creator, who says, hey, obey while I'm gone. You know what to do. You know how to live. I'm coming back eventually, so make sure you are good stewards. Be good tenants. I've sent you messengers and prophets and even John the Baptist. You've killed them. Read the Old Testament. So the owner says, well, I guess I'll send my son, Jesus. But verse number 14, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. This is his son. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they either thought that the owner was dead because they were going to receive the inheritance, or they thought he was feeble, incredibly weak, so they were going to receive the inheritance, or they thought that he didn't really love his son that much, so that they would just kill his son and then receive the inheritance from the owner. Either way, it's a really poor plan. So let's kill him in verse 15. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Here's what's going to happen for those who are going to, who would rather put Christ to death and rule their own way, who would rather live selfishly for their own gain rather than according to the owners. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. What about justice? Man, what about justice? What about what my seven-year-old says all the time? Well, that's not fair. Last week I had to tell him what fair was, which was him starting to pay for his electricity and water and for his food and schooling and finding his own way to the pool and paying for his own clothes, right? You want fair? Sure. So they start whining about this because they understand Jesus is talking to them as religious leaders. They get the imagery of the vineyard. I'm the vine, you are the branches, John 15. They get the imagery from the Old Testament. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So if we kill your son in like three days, then you're gonna reject, surely not, verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will become broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, friends, in this life, while the owner has come and we have this message of hope, of good news, of Christ, we know that he's coming back again. We're living in this already, not yet. He's already come and he's coming again. The kingdom is here and it's coming again. We have this both and. He says, take the resources that I've given you and be good stewards, be good tenants with those things, with your money, with your time, with your relationships, even with the very breath that you have. I thought about it this past week. I was, I was frustrated about something and verbalizing that frustration to someone. And then I thought, man, I'm using the very breath that God has put in my lungs to speak anger and malice towards someone else. So it's easy for me to say, I've got these resources, these, these big rock items. Yeah, yeah, I'm, do, I'm doing great things with my time and I'm giving plenty of money. I'm doing those things. But what about the small things, minute to minute? How am I using my intelligence, my spiritual giftings? How am I using my relationship with my wife? How am I using my words? How am I using my eyes? How am I using all of these resources? Because Jesus says the owner is coming back. And if you've used these things for your own selfish gain, then you are going to be crushed. 
because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that he's speaking of here. Sin is most basically acting like we are the owner of our resources rather than the tenant of the resources that we've been given by God. And the owner is coming back. So this here is a warning to us. We bear fruit for the sake of others. Then in verse number 19, we see Jesus continuing throughout the day. And we have here about paying taxes to Caesar. We can go on some um, political rant or rampage if we want to, but we're not going to do that. We're going to see here that they keep continuing to try to trip him up. They ask him, what about how do we, do we pay taxes or not? Verse number 23, Jesus, but he perceived their craftiness. Now, maybe where have we seen this word crafty before? Maybe where do we see it for the first time in the Bible? Any takers? Genesis, yeah, chapter. We'll get there. It's one of those, yeah, somewhere in Genesis. We'll stick with Genesis. It's in Genesis. Good job. All right, uh, Genesis chapter three, right? We have the serpent come in in verse number one. Who was what than all of the other creatures? Craftier. I think Luke uses this word on purpose to draw this comparison here. He's craftier than all of them. But he perceived their craftiness, and here's why. Because if Jesus said, yeah, yeah, you should pay taxes to the Romans, then the Israelites, the Jews, would be mad at him for saying that because they didn't like being exiled under the Romans. They wanted to be their own empire. But if, if Jesus said, no, you don't have to pay taxes to the Romans, then the Romans would come in and kill Jesus. And so the most religious people are trying to get somebody to kill Jesus for them. Isn't that crazy? It's just wild, but Jesus perceives it. Verse 23 and verse number 24. Show me a denarius, which is about a day's wage. Whose likeness and inscription does it have there? And the answer, they said, Caesar. So on one side, it would say Pontifus Maximus, which was the high priest. And this is what the Romans recognized as both the religious leader and the political leader. So it had Caesar's picture on one side. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. Now imagine the true son of God standing here, looking at the picture of someone who claims to be the son of a deity. And he says, man, look at this guy's picture. He thinks he's got it all. He thinks he is the son of a God, Caesar. So he says, you know what? If it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. But that which is God's, Give it to God's. This is some second tier emperor, and Jesus isn't worried about him. Here's what he's saying there was a, a command from the Roman Empire that you had to uh, make a vow, an oath. And it was Kaiser Kyrios, which means Caesar, Kaiser, is Lord Kyrios. And if you refuse to say that Caesar is Lord, you would be tortured. It's like with Nero, they would take you out to the gladiators and you would either uh, be eaten alive by an animal for sport or he would burn you at the stake. Jesus here is saying, no, no, Caesar can have what's his, which is not very much. It's just money. He's saying, yeah, pay your taxes to Caesar because you got it from Caesar and you need to pay your taxes. But he's saying, but if it's the Lord's, Jesus is Lord. And what is Jesus Lord over? Everything. Everywhere we look, we see the image and the imprint of God. As we look at each other, we see the image of God. Everything that we are as a people and that we do as a people is the result of God using us and resourcing us. So Jesus is saying, if it is man or if it comes from man, he said, it's mine. He said, so give to me, not just your money, not just your tax, not just a tithe, but give me your entire self. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, some financial things over here, but give to Jesus, the Lord, what is his, and that would be all of life. So truly living gives everything to Jesus. And then we pick up in verse number 27. We see that truly living looks forward to a better life. And we see this long passage here in verse number 27 going all the way down to verse number 40. And we see the Sadducees that are mentioned here for the very first time in in Luke's gospel. We haven't seen them the whole time. And the Sadducees, they didn't believe in uh, the resurrection. They didn't believe in some sort of future life. And so they try to trip Jesus up here and they say, well, how do we, if, if the future life is real, Jesus, 
How do we make this comparison and contrast? How do we work out all the wrinkles and untangle all of these things in this life and make them work in the next? And so according to Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if there was a man who was married to a lady and he died, well, if he had any brothers, well, then he was responsible for his wife. I was going to make a family joke here, but uh, one of my siblings might watch this. So I'm not going to. So uh, it'd be like if, if I passed away, my brother has to take my wife on as his wife now. So, so the, the uh, Sadducees, they say, okay, let's say that happens. But then that guy dies. And then the next brother has to come along. And this happens seven times. This is like one of those murder mysteries. And you're like, what's that woman putting in their food, you know? But he says, how is this going to work out in heaven? Who is she going to be married to? Which one of those guys? So they're trying to trip him up. And notice what Jesus says here. He says, look, I'm not worried about that. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given to marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given to marriage. And then he talks about how he references Moses. And if you remember how God appeared to Moses there in the burning bush, what did God say? He doesn't say, I am the Lord over today. No, the Lord shows up and says, I've been Lord since the beginning. Over Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am I am Lord, I am creator, ruler, sustainer, provider, and I am going to be Lord. Jesus says here, the Lord who was, is, and forevermore will be. And so with God, he's not trying to figure out, oh man, we got ourselves into this, um, in, into this frenzy here with all these marriages. I don't know what's going to happen in the next life. Jesus says, no, nah, man, we're not worried about marriage. You're not going to be married in the next life. I told Shannon a couple weeks ago, I said, that's, that's kind of weird. I said, I wonder if we're going to be friends in heaven. You ever think about that? That kind of puts new perspective on your arguments. Or at least it did that day. <laughs> I said, I wonder if we're going to be friends. And I said, hopefully we'll still be best friends. Maybe we can get some mansions close to each other. Wouldn't that be fun? Maybe we can swap around. She said, and maybe we'll never even see each other in heaven. I said, cool. <laughs> we have all kinds of questions about heaven from infants to tattoos uh, to marriage to football to food. It's like, are we going to go to the bathroom or not? Well, if we're eating all this food, it's just weird. You know, you have all these questions about heaven. And we can speculate all we want. But here's what we do know about heaven. And here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying the age to come is going to be infinitely more, infinitely better infinitely richer, infinitely safer than anything we could experience here. We're looking forward to that when we have no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more shame, no more pain. He says, so look forward to that day. Truly living today looks forward to a better life. And then in verse number 41, or if you look back at verse number 39 real quick, this is interesting. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. So they spent most of the day trying to trip up Jesus. And they're like, doggone, if we can't do it. You have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. He's just like, I'm done with y'all. Then he turns around and asks a question. Verse number 41. We see, we see here that truly living finds joy in following Jesus. Jesus quotes from Psalm chapter 110. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Jesus turns the tables. First, he did it physically, literally. Now he does it philosophically, linguistically. And he says, okay, so how did Jesus say to his Lord, you're going to be my son and you weren't even born yet? Jesus is saying, hey, y'all are missing it. He's right here in your midst. You have Jesus sitting here looking at you and you're missing him. Come on, scribes, Pharisees, you know the Old Testament, you know the Bible better than anybody else, and you're missing him all while you're looking for loopholes. You've, been, you've made a career of that. Instead of finding joy in following Jesus, in stepping into kingdom life, you're miserable finding loopholes, and eventually you're going to be condemned. He says here, beware of the scribes. They walk around in these long robes aimlessly. They devour, verse 47, they devour the widow's houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They're so spiritual, 
they will receive the greater condemnation. They've missed out on joy in following Jesus because they've been pursuing selfish gain. And then lastly, we see here in verse number 21, we finished here with these four verses. We see that truly living sacrifices everything in this life. Uh, excuse me, preacher, uh, can you uh, quantify what everything means? Yeah, yeah, we'll let Jesus do that. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, which by the way, that word there, lepton, is, um, it means the smallest of the coin in circulation. Basically, each one of those coins, you, you could make that in about four minutes of work. So altogether, she would make these two copper coins for working for about eight minutes in an average 10-hour day. Nothing. But that's all she had. She put them in uh, two small copper coins. And Jesus said in verse 3, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more than all of them. Looking at those who were prancing around in their nice robes, who were praying these long pontificating prayers for everyone else to see. She put in more than all of them. Verse 4, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Literally, what that says in the Greek, she put in all of her life. She put in all of her hope. She was fully relying on and trusting in the sustaining power of Jesus. You see, they would look at her and say, man, she gave nothing. Jesus looks at her and says, she gave nothing everything. I ran these numbers a little while back, and I don't, I don't do this to, to shame any of us. Um, I do this uh, because Jesus speaks more about money than he does ever, anything else. And we have to look at least at what Jesus is saying here. But, but we as a congregation, um, if on the average, I don't know what y'all make. I don't know what anybody gives. Just so you know, I just see these numbers that come in. I get macro numbers each week from the finance team. They send these to me. But, but knowing on average the number of folks who show up here each and every week, our church, our congregation, McDonough, should be bringing in upwards or over half a million dollars a year if we were giving 10% of our income. If we were all giving 10% of our income, we would be bringing in about half a million dollars as a congregation. This year we're on track to not even bring in half of that. I don't say that to say, give us more money. I say that to say, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where your desire is, that's where you're going to put your resources. And so if we are desiring something more than Jesus and something more than the kingdom, I hope it's not us that Jesus is saying, look at them. They're just giving out of their abundance. They're just throwing in a little bit here and there rather than giving everything to the point of poverty, all of life like this lady. Because that engine of desire, it is fueled by the steering wheel of resources. We have plenty, church. We have plenty of two things. We have plenty of need. Myself and Chris, other pastors, other church leaders, it's really difficult. I, I've got a, I had somebody last night at a wedding I was at. They said, hey, man, why haven't you texting me back? I said, I don't even want to preach a sermon tomorrow. <laughs> like, I, I just want to go play with kids at VBS. I haven't even wanted to <laughs> prep a sermon, much less text you back. Um, and I get, I get paid to preach a sermon, not paid to text you back. But I, I was just like, man, it's just, it's just been a busy week. I'm just trying to catch up, much less get around to truly pastoring and discipling the way that I should. Chris is burning a candle on both ends. He was up late last night, up early this morning. I, he didn't take a day off this week. I at least was at the beach for a few days getting a nice tan. But Chris, he didn't take any days off. We're bringing on Keith. And we want to pay him because we see a huge need here in this body. And if I'm honest, I think we're only scratching the surface of that need. Eventually, and, and by the way, Keith's income is not part of this year's budget. So we're going to start looking at the next year's budget soon and I hope we can keep Keith around. That's the plan. If we can't, then we're just going to sell this building. And I don't want to do that. I, I want us to be able to, to reach all the folks around here 
the tens of thousands of people who are moving into McDonough year after year who don't know about the good news of Jesus Christ. I want us to be a church who is equipping each other. I want to be a pastor who can faithfully equip you and look around at other men and women who are paid to faithfully equip you. And that takes a lot of resources. It just does. And so I'm not asking for a raise. I'm not saying, hey, man, give me some more. I want us to be able to resource those around us. And there are so many, even this past week. Jason Banks spent more time here at the building than I did. Guess how much money he made? A lot of money from a different job he has, okay? He made no money from the church. We don't pay him a penny. We, David, I've never given David any money for lead worship for us or any of these other guys, but they faithfully serve. We see the need in front of us and we're giving to that. May we be a people who are financially giving to that as well. So that's my prayer, that's my plea for us this morning, is to consider how you are giving. Are you giving out of your abundance or to the point of need, of sacrifice, of desperation? Here are seven things that we see. I'll go through these quickly. And these point back, and if you want a reference for these, you can go back to each one of those seven sections that we just saw. I want you to ask yourself this difficult question, what would Jesus do if he were me? Not just what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus do if he were me? If, if he lived where I live, if he made the money that I made, if he were in the house that I were in, if he had the spouse that I had and the kids that I had, what would Jesus do if he were me? If he was the same age as you, the same career, and what would that look like? What, what would his life look like if he were you? And what's the difference between what his life would look like and what your life looks like? Because Jesus models for us truly living. And there's some sort of despair, some sort of chasm between what his life would look like and what ours looks like. To follow Jesus is to ask yourself that question. What would Jesus do if he were me? To follow Jesus is to ask that question until your dying breath. So friends, ask that question. What would he do? What would it look like to follow Jesus? Secondly, confessing that Jesus has all authority, not you, may be difficult if you are not redeemed. So this morning, if you're like, yeah, I really want to hold on to some of this power, some of this control, some of these resources, I, I would just plead with your heart. Have you put your faith and your trust in the one who is all-powerful, who has given you all things? Thirdly, failing to recognize the beauty of Christ will leave you crushed by him. Failing to recognize the beauty of Christ. And we saw it here as Jesus talked about, about this, this building on which there is this chief cornerstone. They knew all the right stuff, but they tripped over the main thing that their lives were supposed to be built on. So where is Jesus in your life? Because without a cornerstone, you have this really shaky, this really shaky structure. The cornerstone was perfectly level. It had perfect 90 degree edges and angles on it so that the structure could be built well so it wouldn't fall over. Friend, if, if Jesus is but a rock in the wall somewhere, if he's just a small stone in your life, then you will be crushed by him. Those are his words. So run to his beauty, recognize him for who he is. Eventually, your life is going to crumble without him. Fourthly, the one who has given us all we have is the one to whom we are to give our all. God deserves all that humanity is. God deserves all that humanity has. He deserves all of us. He's given us all these things. He deserves them all. Fifthly, the hope of life after death means that we are not reduced to pursuing our best life now. This is a prospect, by the way, that is equally and essentially depressing as it is theologically inaccurate. I mean, if this is all we have to pursue, dang, what am I supposed to tell someone who's struggling with suicidal thoughts? No, 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 just live for a little bit more stuff. No, 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 next week it'll be better. No, no, just live for the weekend, live for vacation, live for retirement, live for graduation, live for, man, 
Live for a better life. Live for a better kingdom. Live for a better king. We have more in America than we've ever had, except for happiness. Again, if you look statistically, our happiness score is dropping. Our depression score is getting higher each and every day. Nothing stands between you and a life that is truly living. Nothing stands between you and that life worth truly living. I would, I would imagine that it is right under your nose. It, it's right here in the pages of scripture. Step into that life this morning in faith and obedience and trust. Sixthly, the cost of discipleship is high, but the cost of non-discipleship is even higher. Notice I didn't say the cost of making a decision is high or not making a decision to follow Jesus. I made a decision. Jesus is speaking here to his followers, to those who say that they are faithful, to those who have been redeemed, not to those who just know about him, but to those who know him. That cost is gonna be high. It's gonna require a lot from us. But the cost of not following him, of not submitting to all of his lordship is much higher. Lastly, the more you have, the happier you will be is a lie. As my granddaddy used to say, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Jesus Christ lived a life that we were designed to live to give us access to truly living. We have access to that. We don't have to find it. We don't have to go out searching for it. We don't have to hope that we have it. Jesus lived for us so that we can truly live and he was crushed so that we could be made whole. He was crushed so that we could be built into a family of God that is pressing into his mission until we take our final breath. He didn't just model it for us. My plea is not to say, hey, just model the life of Jesus. Just model it, just do your best, try real hard. But it's to ask you, what is keeping you from falling upon his mercy and his grace? Of trusting in and resting in his provision, in his control, in his power, in his love. You have access to the Trinity, to the creator of the universe. He longs for you. He wants you in his presence. Step into that this morning. We get to celebrate communion because he gave his all so that we can give ours. He gave his life so that we can experience life. He died and he rose again so that when we die, we'll be raised again to life with him. And we celebrate that this morning in communion. We have pieces of bread at four stations around the room. We have juice. If you have placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, come and grab a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, repent of your sin, of what is keeping you back what is holding you back from fully following him. By the way, there's no kind of following him. It's either not or it is. So what's holding you back from that? What maybe has been a weight on you this week? You say, yeah, yeah, I'm following Jesus, but sometimes it's just really hard because I want to hang on to this stuff too. Man, repent of those things. Repent of those areas. Repent of that sin. Find your hope and your joy in Jesus Christ. Life in him is amazing. It's truly better. Even if you have nothing and nobody around, you have him. He gave himself so that you have Jesus. Amen. That's our hope this morning. We have nothing else. The body of Christ was broken so that we could be made whole. His blood was shed to cover us in his righteousness. Let's participate in this meal as a spiritual truth and recognizing who we are in Christ. Family, you're invited to join me.